Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in History. I'm Marcus Grodi, your co-host for this program, along with Monsignor Jeffrey Stevenson. Hello, Monsignor. Good, good afternoon. Good to see you, Marcus. <laughs> You're in a different part of the world. In, in yeah, the, it's morning here. But... It's morning there. It's getting close <laughs> to afternoon here. But thank you all for joining us yeah. as we continue walking through St. Irenaeus's Against Heresies. And um, I'm going to make the same encouragement to any of you that just happened on this episode to make the same encouragement that Irenaeus himself made at the beginning of Book 5. He was saying, read the whole thing first. So if you're jumping into hearing us now, I'd strongly encourage you, after you listen a little bit, at some point go back in the Coming Home Network website, chnetwork.org. You can go back to all the episodes. I think this is ep- we have this might be episode 41. I'm not sure the number, but we've got a mess of episodes walking us through Irenaeus, and I would encourage and if you to start at the beginning, because you'll want to read the whole book uh, to get the background of Irenaeus's argument. All right, Monsignor, we're, this is going to be, uh, uh, if you will, episode two in book five. And our goal is to cover chapters two through four. So we're covering page 452 through 458 in the Keeble translation. Um, and what I'd like to do is I've put together a, a rough outline of the of what's covered in these sections. And what we'd like to do, everyone, is I'll, I'll go through the overview. Monsignor and I will go through the overview. Uh, then we'll take a step back and cover a few of the main items. Again, we're presuming you're reading this, so we can't cover everything uh, that that he does in this wonderful section. Right, Monsignor? Fine with you, Monsignor? Senior That's Frozen, great. Approach uh-huh. it that way? Okay, yeah. now, it seems to me, Monsignor, of course, the whole argument, of the whole book, is this bishop helping his congregants and fellow bishops deal with the rise of Gnostic heresies that are all over the place. And so on the one hand, our problems today are not primarily dealing with a bunch of Gnostic heretics, but on the other hand, some of these ideas still float around. And so what in many ways I'm more interested in when I read Irenaeus is not so much as specific arguments against the heretics but the underlying theological, doctrinal, scriptural assumptions upon which Irenaeus has built his arguments so that we can see what were the doctrines in the apostolic faith that they were presuming during that time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for Irenaeus' opponents, um, especially those Valentinian Gnostics, they basically wanted to say that the, the that the human body, the physical body, is irrelevant to who they are, and they want to leave all that behind. They they want to live in the world of pure spirit, 
today we've got all these movements saying uh, we have the right to redefine what human nature is. And mm. it's amazing, the connections. Well, there's, there's of course, um, Mary Baker Eddy's Christian Science, which basically, if I understand it a little bit, is that yeah. all this physical stuff is just a figment of our imagination. Yeah, that's right. You know, You're only sick up here. <laughs> yeah, so there's that. But, yeah. but but there seems to be two ideas that were a big part of these Gnostic heretics that he's dealing with in this section. And these ideas still float around today and pop their, their ugly heads. One is, how do you put together the Old Testament image of God with the New Testament image of God? The Old Testament God seems at times to sound like a, a wrathful judge, um, and whereas the New Testament God is a father, merciful, loving, caring. So how do you put those two together? There, there's a, a way to put them together that's not a problem. But these Gnostics had a problem with it. It was partially yeah. because they also believed that spirit is good and physicality is bad. That's right. That's right. And you put those two together, and they end up with all kinds of permutations of multiple gods, multiple fathers, multiple beings, higher and lower emanations from good down to bad. You know, God the great, the perfect, cannot touch this earth, so he's got to have emanations in between. All those things were covered in there. But these things still pop their ugly heads up today because there's a lot of Christians that think that the flesh is bad, the body's bad. It's the spirit trapped inside this bad body. That's not Christian. You know, that's a Gnostic idea. Or, yeah. or, or in our mind, to only be a New Testament Christian. We're not going to deal with the Old Testament. That's past. No. That's not Irenaeus. There's a continuity, right, Monsignor? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, right. that's his assumption. All right. Well, in that, so he's addressing these two different groups. In, in, if you will, in chap, book 5, chapter 2, section 1, on page 452, the audience that he's addressing are those who say we belong to another God, that we don't belong to the creator God. We belong to another God that was before him. And there's a great quote in that section, which we won't do right now, we'll come back to possibly, in which it emphasizes that God mercifully and righteously redeems us because we are in need of communion with him. And there's a neat stuff, we'll talk about that when we come back, but that idea that God mercifully and righteously redeemed us because we are in need of communion with him. It's about God mercifully giving us what he knows we need. All right. Now, if you will, if you jump all the way down to the to the end of this section in chapter book five, chapter four, sections one and two on page four fifty-seven and following, he seems to be going back to that addressing that same group of Gnostics. And this time he's saying he's talking about those who devise another father besides the creator. Again, another God. Right, Monsignor? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, another one. And so 
he he's addressing the idea that our bodies. The question is, can our phys- again? It's the same issue, but can our physical bodies receive life? And he argues that well. He's saying, excuse me, guys, but you're talking and you're seeing and you're hearing and you're touching and you're living. Uh, that kind of proves that our bodies can receive life. Yeah. Just look around you. Excuse me. <laughs> wonderful arguing he's doing there. And, and you know, you, from the beginning of this, our, our section today um, that you've quoted, and, and then the, the very end of it in chapter four, he makes this very simple argument against the Gnostics that if if what you say about your God is true, um, either he doesn't care about us and our physical um, nature, our material nature, or he's come to steal us from that God. And either way, <laughs> Your God's not good. He's either weak and he's unable to do anything about it, or he's a, he's a thief, stealing some other God's property, if you will. You know. Yeah. 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 All the way through, he's just over and over battering this group of people, showing them the irrationality of, in fact, they think they're more rational. But he shows yeah. the irrationality of it, and. In there, he makes a comment that we live as long as God wills. He uses that statement in the midst of an argument, but if you take a step back, he's he, he's expressing an assumption as Christianity. We live as long as God wills. We, we were not accidents in this life. And, uh, you know, if I die tomorrow, we're not going to—we're we're, going to die in our lives in the moment— God plans for us to die. There's the mystery of God's will, his foreknowledge, his predestination. But Irenaeus is saying we live as long as God wills for us to live. There's 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 a there's purpose in our life, and it's a part of God's plan. So he addresses that as an aside to his argument. I just wanted to point that out. He yeah. also says after death, our bodies have the power to receive life. He makes that in the midst of his argument. That comes out there, and we might get back to that. Okay, Monsignor? Yeah. Now I want to go back. So we've looked at the, if you will, the bookends, which deal with this one heresy, but in the middle from chapter 2, section 2, through chapter 3, verses 3, he's basically addressing another heresy, that deny the salvation of the flesh. So this is a group that really is that emphasis on the this flesh cannot receive life. This flesh uh, is evil. I don't can't remember Monsignor whether any of those groups posit that different gods created the spirit and different god created the flesh. And I mean, it's, it was goofy at the time. Yeah, but. What's particularly significant about this section, in my view, is that in his focus on addressing this heresy, he's revealing some assumptions that he has about the Eucharist. And that's why we've entitled this episode just on the Eucharist, because 
He says that those who deny the salvation of the flesh therefore deny the real presence in the Eucharist. Well, in that statement, Irenaeus is revealing his complete assumption of not only in the, that he believes in the real presence, but that he assumes all of his audience believe in the real presence. This isn't an issue at the time about this is he believes as Christ said that the, that his that the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist. Irenaeus assumes the validity of Eucharistic real presence which nourishes our blood and our bodies. Right, Monsignor? And this we're definitely going to go back and talk to but Yeah, absolutely. And there, I mean, I've been working on this a little bit too for a class that I'm doing here in uh, Minneapolis. There, all these early apostolic fathers are very clear on this. So the, the second generation of the church yeah. basically are speaking with one voice about the nature of the Eucharist. Yeah, we when when in the journey home program or in other times when when. Converts talk about how important the early church fathers were to their opening of their hearts to the Catholic Church. And if the question is, well, why is that? And, of course, one of the reasons, which I think Newman kind of points out, is that when you, you know, the idea that when you go to the early church, you don't find Protestantism. Uh, that's right. You know, that's you don't find sola yeah. scriptura in the early church. You don't find faith alone in the early church. You don't find sola gratia in the early church. Uh, but one thing also that you find in the early church, which is different outside the Catholic Church, is this assumption on the real presence yeah. in the Eucharist. It's there. You can't. You don't, yeah. We don't find Ulrich Zwingli in the early church. No, the, the idea of symbol, no. you, you don't. No. You, you might find, you might be able to find some of Luther's ideas or Cal seeds of Luther and Calvin's ideas in the early church, because, you know, if you take Luther at his word, where he says, you know, Jesus said, this is my body, but then he's poor, forced to explain it. Well, the point is in the early church, they're not, they're not trying to explain it yet. Yeah. That That's what we encounter. We, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in, in, Section 3, Book 2, page 543 and following, talks about the wheat and the grapes uh, becoming the bread and the wine, becoming the Word of God, becoming the Eucharist, becoming the substance, our, causing the substance of our flesh to, to grow and subs, subsist. You know, we see this flow that he talks about uh, in the work of God through the Eucharist, uh, giving growth to our to our person. Um, uh, there's a parallel between Eucharist and our regeneration. Both are from God. Both are gifts from God. There's a mystery there, even in our regeneration. So he talks about that. And he talks about the idea of us, of us being dissolved and disciplined for our perfection. And Again, there's all these parallels between uh, a seed has to die. Jesus uses that parable that it might grow. 
and a seed has to be planted that it might become a vine to produce a grape, to produce the wine, to produce the Eucharist, to produce our growth. All of that is of God. And so he's using that in his, his arguments there. And we may come back to that. Move on a little bit. Um, remember, Irenaeus said that this book, he's going to use a lot of the writings of St. Paul. So in chapter 3, verse or section 1, page 454, we see Paul uh, expressing that man is given to infirmity that we might know God. And this deals a lot about uh, the weakness of man, our, our need of discipline, uh, why we go through infirmity. He talked a bit about that last week in that section. Um, gospel suffering is for our spiritual renewal. We learn through trial about our weakness and then about God's strength. It is not endurance and trial that is evil, as some might say, but rather lifting oneself up against God and being unthankful is evil. So it involves our—he's dealing here with the virtues of humility and surrender to therefore allow God to draw us to perfection. And, of course, the Eucharist is a part of that. Trials lead to truth and love, which in the process increase our knowledge and love for God and man. So he talks about the importance of our trials in this section. And, you know, Monsignor, he's dealing with this because these Gnostics are saying what we do with the body doesn't matter spiritually. Yeah. And it's interesting how he how he keeps drawing on St. Paul here because that's very important strategic decision on his part because the Gnostics were getting a lot out of Paul. They tried to take Paul and out of context. He was against the law. Um, and so that he can draw on Paul here in these arguments makes it all the more effective against the rhetoric against the Gnostics. Moving on to uh, section two of chapter three, 455, uh, he continues on reflecting on Paul, and he says, and this is an attitude issue, folks, to look upon weakness without recognizing God's virtues and power. To do that, we contradict his power in his word and we miss his strength. So it reminds me of, of uh, you know, have no anxiety about anything but with everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Make your request known to God and the peace of God. And that comes from Philippians 4. It's our attitude of thanksgiving, the window through which we look at our weaknesses. And when we look at it by recognizing God's virtues and power, then we will discover more of his power and how he's created us and what he wants us to be. If we don't go there with that, we won't see it. There's in, 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 in essence, responding to grace. I hope, Monsignor, I'm just not reading into uh, Irenaeus here, but it seems that he's emphasizing, again, that's the, his assumptions upon which he builds his argument against the Gnostics. By contemplating our creation, we ought to recognize his might and see his power to restore to eternal life. So that was a point when he talks about 
Um, oh, he gets, um, yeah, yeah. It, it is surely. And tell us where you are, Marcus. Here. I, I'm sorry. I'm on page 455 and following. Okay. Uh, it is surely more difficult for God to create and form a living body from nothing than to restore it again once it has become dust. So, you know, often when I think about people that have a problem with the real presence in the Eucharist, you know, the idea of, of changing the bread into the body of Christ and it just looks like bread. Well, what's, you know, it's like, wait a second. God created us from nothing. Out of nothing, he created our living bodies, our soul, who we are. If he can do that, Irenaeus is saying it's no problem if he can do that to once we're died and we become dust to rejuvenate us to eternal life. Yeah, well, he said, yeah, because he says, you know, on page 455 in section two, he makes the argument that um, it's a whole lot more complicated to create a human life than to uh, get it running again. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's, you know, it's one thing to design and build an automobile. Um, that's very difficult, but it doesn't take uh, quite as much to, if it breaks down, you know, to get it running again in the shop. <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, gets back to this idea that if we're focused on resurrection without appreciating creation, we won't build, we won't understand resurrection. Yeah. Oh, very good. But, but if we understand creation, and that's where Paul begins in Romans 1, that the evidence of God's creativity is available all around us, guys. We're without excuse. It's there. We can see it. As Bonaventure said, the vestiges of God's creation are there in creation. If we see that, then the rest makes sense. Resurrection can make sense if we recognize the, the amazingness of his creation. And it makes sense out of who we are, of our body and everything. So, yeah, I did a, I did a little list once um, for my classes about um, Irenaeus and the people that lived around him, the apologists. Um, they, they were happy to draw on elements of, of Greek thought especially Platonism, to help them explain to the, their, you know, the pagans they're trying to evangelize what Christianity is all about. But the one thing where Platonism can't go is the resurrection. Hmm. That's where they had to leave Greek philosophy behind. There was no corresponding element yeah. in Greek philosophy to explain the resurrection of the flesh. All right. If we move on to section three of chapter three on 456 and following. Therefore, God's artistic skills and power shaped and made the flesh. And this is where he says, hey, guys, if you're speaking and living and partaking of life, then you're not dead, right? It's great there. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, you, you, excuse me, but you're not dead. You're alive, right? Well, if the flesh is alive, it therefore is capable of eternal life. 
And he used the example, it's like telling a sponge full of water it can't partake of water. Excuse me, you got water <laughs> in you. So you can partake <laughs> of water. He hit it out of the park on this well, one. Well, th there's yeah. where he's arguing yeah. there. Again, yeah. in their context. God is able to quicken the life he created, and he is able to keep it from corruption and, and open to eternal life. Now, again, 21st century Christians, these are things we kind of take for granted after all these years. So when we listen to Irenaeus, we might say, well, duh, we believe that. We say it in the creed every time. I believe in the resurrection of the body. Well, he's fighting the battles against an early attacks by the devil that would have undercut everything. And because of the battles of these early apologists defending the apostolic deposit of faith and scripture, here we are today able to stand and recite the rule of faith that he believed because he fought the battles for us. Right, Monsignor? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very good. So that's an overview of of what we're looking at today. And now, Monsignor, let's let's take a step back and just pick a few items of interest. And if, if you would, I'd like to draw our first attention on page 452, the, the quote at the end of chapter 2, section 1, where he writes this. For we gave him nothing before, nor does he desire aught of us as one in need. But we are in the need of communion with him. And therefore he mercifully poured himself out that he might gather us into the bosom of the Father. Remember, Marcus, the, uh, we've talked about this in previous podcasts, his, his doctrine of recapitulation. Um, the human race was uh, falling apart and Christ came to recapitulate it or face it to restore it to its original perfection uh, as God created it. And I think that's the, certainly the context of this. We need communion with him. And of course, in the, in the words that are going to follow now, he gets very specific about what that communion looks like. And, and he introduces the, our need for the Eucharist. One of the things I took out of this, Monsignor, is this idea we are in need of communion with him. And to me, that's built on the idea that being created in the image of God, he created every human being that's ever lived with a, a need, a seed inside for communion with God. Of course, Pascal said that. God-shaped void, Pascal, and of course, Augustine talks about that. Our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. This idea. And to me, a, a, a heresy today, i got to be careful in saying this, but a heresy today is the idea that, that God created the diversities of religion. That was God's idea. Well, that's not what the church teaches. But what the church teaches is that God put within every human being a desire for him. And that's the source of all the religions in the world 
If a person on an island somewhere never hears about Jesus Christ, but within him is a desire for God, he will worship God. Every religion in the world has a part of its sacrifice, this idea of turning to God. Where's that come from? It's a part of in here. It's a part of in here. That's why, that's how we build missionary work, is that we go and we build on that which we know is in their conscience, a desire for God. And as Paul said when he spoke in the Areopagus, he says, I want to talk about that God you don't know about. You say you know him. There's this unknown God. Let me tell you about him. But they knew in their heart there was another God out there. They just have a name for him. Paul says, well, let me tell you about him. To me, that's what's behind what's going on here. Yeah. You know, I'll just give you an example from the early fathers on this. Um, Eusebius of Caesarea wrote two books, The Preparation for the Gospel and the Demonstration of the Gospel. And basically, he was doing what Irenaeus was doing, though it's much, much longer. Um, but his the preparation for the gospel, he shows how um, in, in Greek philosophy and the other religions of the world, there is this this desire and a yearning. There's a, there's a sense that there's something more. Um, the demonstration of the gospel, he basically shows how Judaism leads to, the, the Old Testament leads to Christ. But um, the, this idea has been around for a long, long time. It goes way back to the beginning. I, I even remember somewhere, I'm probably paraphrasing it, but in Augustine, he had almost an image of um, all over human culture, um, it, we're like kids that wonder what's on the other side of the fence. <laughs> and so we, we go in the backyard and we pull ourselves up that fence to see what's on the other side. And it's beautiful, but we can't sustain our vision of it because our gravity keeps pulling us down. <laughs> and, and so Augustus says, that's Christ came to help us get over the fence, if you will, uh, and see the, the whole beauty of, of of God and uh, his creation. That reminds me of of Lewis's imagery in The Great Divorce. When when the people in I guess they're in purgatory, I go or in hell, are on the bus to go up to heaven and they're getting a glimpse and it's more they can handle. They can't even step on the grass. <laughs> Remember <laughs> Too that? Sharp. It's too yeah, sharp. No, they can't, that. you know, they it's, can't even step on the grass of heaven because they, their bodies can't even handle the sharp. Yeah, yeah. that's a marvelous image. Oh, it's such a great yeah. book. But yeah. uh, so, okay, if we move on to the next section, which is a whole bunch of great quotes on the Eucharist, and which in in my in my mind all point out. The fact that Irenaeus not only himself just assumes in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, but he assumes everyone he's talking to, including the Gnostics, believe in the real presence. Because he's arguing, well, hey guys, if you don't think the flesh can have life, well, then you're arguing against the Eucharist. That's right. That's right. So that just proves that he assumes they all agree at that point. But there was a quote here, 
Monsignor, that I saw a problem with, and I th- wanted to throw this out at you because okay. it's on the top of page 453 and in our Keeble translation. As I read this, I want listen, do you hear something that's funny in what he is saying here? He says, for blood, well, he goes on, starting back at the bottom um, of page 452. But if the flesh may not be saved, of course, neither did the Lord redeem us by his own blood, nor is the cup of the Eucharist the communion of his blood, nor the bread which we break the communion of his body. For blood is not except by veins and flesh, and the rest of that human substance wherein the word of God was truly created. Now there's the problem. It's like, whoa, 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 wait a second. What do you mean that the Word of God was truly created? Now, that sounds like Arius. That sounds like the, the arguments that Arius made that Jesus was created. Jesus wasn't God. He was The Word of God was truly created. There's a problem there, Monsignor. Was Irenaeus a proto-Arian? No, he wasn't. The problem, I don't know why Keeble would have chosen that word created, but that's not the word that's in the Latin text. So I went and, I went and looked it up yesterday, um, and that expression, qua uh, vere, factum verbum dei, um, Factum or faccio, um, that doesn't mean to create um, in the sense Arius, Arianism would, would think. The, it, it's a much, the word in Latin means to make happen. So it's really, I think, um, a, Irenaeus's way of saying that the Christ was incarnated. He became flesh. He didn't. He wasn't created flesh. Um, he he came. He became flesh. He took flesh on. He made it happen. And so he, he by his own will and intention, he um, made himself part of the Eucharist, the bread and the wine in the Eucharist. Didn't you say that the other translation did the same thing, the, the other Protestant yeah. translation? Yeah, the other one, yeah. And I just think there, because when we get into the next section, the language is even stronger that Irenaeus uses, that um, he doesn't actually use the word transubstantiation, but he approaches it. It's a very strong affirmation of the real presence of Christ. So and the, and the and that the, the the bread and the wine have been transformed. Okay, so in the incarnation, so there may have been a motive for Keeble and maybe other non-Catholic translators to, you know, avoid using the translation that's going to sound a bit too Catholic, maybe because it affirms. That's what Catholic. I'm wondering. Yeah, in the 19th century, you know, that was a. A raging argument about the doctrine of transubstantiation, and even um, within the I, Anglicans. Oh yeah, oh yeah. As an Anglican, um, 
we we used to say we believe in the real presence, but the word transubstantiation just goes too far. Um, but that's what Keeble and Newman and Pusey in the in their movement, the Oxford movement, were arguing for a more yeah traditional liturgical understanding of the Eucharist. And so there was a battle going on, even within, it wasn't just a Catholic issue, it was, it was a battle within there. Why don't you take us to the, on here, Monsignor, and talk sure, more okay. about the Eucharistic quotes here. All right, so... Um, Page 453. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know what I wanted to do first, Marcus? Yes. I have, our, Mark, we go back, I just think it's good to remind ourselves again that this is the second great um, intervention that Irenaeus makes about the Eucharist. The first one is found on page 361. 361, um, okay. Yeah, way back, 361. This okay. would be um, this would be in section, or book 418, section 5, top of page 361. Just, I was just going to read that, just to remind okay. us of this. We offer to him the things which are his own, showing forth accordingly our communion and union and professing a resurrection of flesh and spirit. That is, that as bread from the earth, receiving the summons of God is no longer common bread, but an Eucharist composed of two things, both an earthly and an heavenly one. So also our bodies partaking of the Eucharist are no longer corruptible, having the hope of eternal resurrection. Um, so there he's talking about the transformation of the Eucharist into the body and, and blood of Christ, the, the, the material at, gifts of the Eucharist. I would say, and I'm, you, I might be wrong in this, Monsignor, but at this stage in the church, we recognize that a part of apostolic tradition is the idea that when the the elements of a sacrament i don't know what the right words are for that you know the correct matter yeah, yeah the matter uh -huh. they, they wouldn't be using those psychological terms the philosophical terms yet at this point but when the right elements whether it's baptism yeah, they they weren't using Aristotle at this point. Right. So whether it's baptism or the Eucharist, if you have the right elements, water, bread, and wine, when they, when they, um, what's the word here? Receive the word of God. Receiving the summons of God, they become the sacrament. Baptism. That's right. Water, the right words of institution, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it, it becomes the sacrament. Bread and wine, receiving the words of constitution, become the body and blood, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. I wrote um, on my, next to that epiclesis. I, I, that was, you know, in the early uh, Eucharistic prayers of the church, 
the epiclesis, the calling down of the spirit on the gifts was considered the moment of, of, um, of consecration. And I would say at this point in time, in that whole section, those of you listening, if you want to earmark page 361, that whole section deals with this. Um, and then, but I would say at this point in time in history, we're not encountering the question yet, who has the authority to do this? Not, not that... Oh, no. Well, wait a minute. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I interrupted you, Mark. Well, in other words, there'll come a time within the next hundred or so years when the question will be, what about a baptism done by somebody outside the church? Is it a valid baptism? And they will decide, well, as long as the right words are used, it becomes the sacrament. And, and, the, and, the, and that water is used, of course. And that know. water is used, right. So, the, you know, there was the right element yeah. and the right words, it becomes. And, and it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be done by a priest. But that, but that concession was never extended to other people when it came to the Eucharist. Exactly. And, and I, I don't think that was an issue yet here. Yeah. It, it would become an issue later, and that was never extended for the Eucharist. Um, and I would say at this time, if there's any assumption at all, it's, it's assumed that a, a priest is doing it, both baptism and Eucharist. Yeah. Yes. A priest in union with the bishop is doing the sacraments. That was the assumption. It wasn't a question. It just became a question later when you had heretical priests doing the sacraments. And so... Yeah a person who comes from a Donatist background into the church, do we have to rebaptize them? And there was a big battle about that, Cyprian. Oh, yes, there was. Cyprian, yeah. and, you know, do you have to rebaptize or not? You know, And no, you don't have to rebaptize. That's a one-time thing, so that's a big issue. What about the Eucharist? What about the Eucharist? You know, and they, and they in the end, concluded, no, we're not changing our assumptions. It's a, it's a, a priest duly ordained by a, a bishop of the apostolic succession. Am I saying it correctly, Monsignor? You are. Okay. I think you are. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we go we go back then to our section on, on page four fifty three. I wanted to point out one other thing, Marcus. All right. That, that we section three on page four fifty three. Um. I'll read it first. Since therefore, both the cup which is mingled and the bread which is made, that sounds, the cup that's mingled, that sounds like, you know, the a little bit of water is infused into it, right? Yeah. And the, the bread which is made receiveth the word of God, and the Eucharist becometh the body of Christ. And of those... And of these, the substance of our flesh groweth and subsisteth. That, that's very strong, realistic language about the Eucharist. Um, and I was fascinated with it because um, I think I made, an, I made a note about this. I went and looked it up a little bit more um, on page, we're at page 453 here. 
Sure, you've got so many pages running around here. There we go. Um, that I, I was fascinated with this, and I wanted to go and look at what we knew from the from the um, manuscripts that we have, the original manuscripts, because. He uses the word, Cusey um, uses the word, the, uh, the Eucharist becometh the body of Christ. And I was curious about, um, about that because the two translations we have um, are the, the one from Cusey and the other one from, um, uh, from, the, from the Anti-Nicene Fathers series from you Edinburgh. You mean Keeble, you're saying Pusey, you mean Keeble. Oh, Ke sorry, Keeble, sorry, yep. yeah, Keeble's yep. one. And then, and then the one from Edinburgh. Um, I think the, the text actually is even stronger. We have a Greek fragment of it. Um, and and it, the word is absolutely to become... Um, you remember your New Testament Greek, um, the root or the the base one is ginomai. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the the Eucharist, he Eucharistia, becomes uh, the body of Christ, soma Christu. Um, and uh, there's one other point in the Latin. Um, the Latin one has a similar thing um, that it that the the body of, or that Christ, the Word of Christ, takes possession of hmm. of of um, the bread and the wine. That's the that's the word that's used for that. So I just think it's very strong um, uh, language that approaches what we as Catholics understand by the doctrine of transubstantiation. Um, and I think it's a little bit stronger than the way um, that Keeble translates it here, where he says the Eucharist becomes the body of Christ. Um, yeah. yeah, all the early fathers really assumed this idea that, yeah. in fact, I yeah. forget which early yeah. father says, don't trust your eyes. Oh, I've forgotten that. That's a great point. I forget which other early father says, don't trust your eyes. It's become the body and blood of Christ. Yeah. And it isn't for another 800 years that Aristotle idea starts getting used to try and describe what's going on. It's beyond. Irenaeus kind of says, guys, don't go there. No, and that's a good point. And, you know, I just, my old ecclesial home, Anglicanism, that was, the high church Anglicans wanted to make that argument that, Yes, we believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, but we're not comfortable with the language that Thomas Aquinas uses about how it's transformed in the accidents um, of, of bread and wine remain, but um, they're just kind of, they just, you just, what you see. Um, we were, we were taught that when Christ transforms the Eucharist into His body and blood, He doesn't overcome the bread and the and the wine. He enjoys Himself to it. Okay. 
there uh, most of the others the rest of this these two chapters we covered i think in the the overview but uh, it seems to me monsignor that the rest of section 3 is worth reading yeah i am i agree and have at it okay uh, picking up the bottom of page 450. And afterwards, by the wisdom of God cometh to be used by man, and having received to itself the word of God, becometh a Eucharist. In other words, the body and blood of Christ. Or is that becometh again? Yeah. So also our bodies, nourished thereby and put into the ground and dissolved therein, shall rise again in their own time. The word of God giving them resurrection to the glory of God and his Father, and who in very deed wins immortality for that which is mortal, and on that which is corruptible freely bestoweth incorruption. Now, Father, I'll pause there, because we'll, we'll keep reading, but they're parallel that God takes the body, it takes the bread and wine, and through the word of God, it becomes the Eucharist, or our bodies are planted in the ground, become, if you will, new. There's the parallel he's making there, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, the third line down from uh, the top on page 454. Yes. All, all, so also our bodies nourished thereby, nourished by the Eucharist. Right? Yep. Yep. Is that the way, is that the correct way to read it? That's how I would read it. I think it. so. In other words, John 6. Yeah. yeah. This is John 6. So the, so the Eucharist becomes essential. Yep. I know that this morning in the office of readings, we had a reading from Hillary, but I know that there's oh, yeah. another reading from Hillary in the office of readings that talks about the way that we abide in Christ is through the partaking of the Eucharist. The way, when he says, abide in me and I in you, how do you do that? Through the partaking of mm -hmm of the Eucharist. And he says that in John 6, if you eat my body and drink my blood, whoever eats my body and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So there's the nourishment that's the background to this. All right. And his father, who in very deed wins immortality for that which is mortal and on that which is corruptible freely bestoweth in corruption, because the power of God is made perfect in weakness, lest we, as having our life of ourselves, should at any time be puffed up and exalted against God, bearing an ungrateful mind, and that being taught by experience how that we have our everlasting countenance of his excellency, not of our own nature. We might neither miss of God's glory such as it really is, nor be ignorant of our own nature, but might behold what God can do and what benefits man is receiving. Um, Monsignor, I, I take this to emphasize the mystery of what God is doing both in the Eucharist and in our own lives. It's not dependent on us. 
It's not through our effort. You know, when a priest says the words and it becomes the body and blood, no, it wasn't him. It was the mystery of God. And when we're changed as a result of his mercy, it's his gift of grace, not uh-huh. us. So all of this is to, to turn us in gratefulness to God and recognize the means of nourishment he's given to us. And, you know, I just go back on just to point out on page 453, we didn't we didn't read that part. Um, yep. Uh, three quarters of the way down the page. Um, um, he said this not, he, he saith not this of a spiritual and invisible sort of man, for the spirit hath not flesh and bones, but of that dispensation which relates to the true man, consisting as it does of flesh and nerves and bones. And then here's what comes, which both receives nourishment from his cup, which is his blood, and growth from the bread, which is his body. That's clearly a, a Eucharistic yeah. statement. So the point there that I guess we can leave everybody with today is, you know, we can focus on the argument that he's he's making with these Gnostics, but if we take a step back and listen to him, Irenaeus assumed without question the real presence of Christ, body, blood, soul, divinity, and I say it that way, not just body and blood, but soul and divinity, the whole Christ in the, the Eucharist Christ. that is the nourishment. And it becomes that through the mystery of God, through the proclamation of the Word of God, in other words, the words of institution. And Monsignor, isn't it true the entire history of liturgy of the Church has involved a, a very diligent preservation of the words of institution. It's oh, yes, a really absolutely. major part about the whole history of liturgy. Even in the liturgical renewal of the 20th century, the bottom line was preserving the authenticity of the words of institution so that we can be certain it becomes what Christ says it is. Exactly. Well, we saw we see that in St. Paul, too, how he very consciously, conscientiously, hands on those words that he had been that he had received. Yeah, I remember oh, when I no. was a Presbyterian pastor saying those very words and the night in which he was betrayed he took bread and after giving thanks he blessed it and said you know gave it to his disciples saying take yeah. and eat this is my body. Well, that's those are the words of institution that have been preserved from Christ to his apostles and passed on the apostolic deposit of faith. And not not being a liturgist, but I believe all of the early texts that we have of uh, the Eucharist all have those words of institution. In it. I don't think there's anything that that has survived that has something, some other thing going on. Well, why don't we stop there? Um, and again, we summarized all the ref. There's a number of really great great quotes in there. Excuse me. Um, that we could pull out, but let's. Why don't we call it to a quit? Next week we'll pick up with chapter five. I'm not sure what our goal is next week for how far we'll go, Monsignor. But, uh, but we'll have fun. We'll have fun with that um, because now we're heading into. Um, he's going to be discussing human na- what a human being is. 
So we're going to do a little bit of what's called theological anthropology next week. All so, right. Uh, I'll trust you on that, Monsignor. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, you're, you're digging into waters that aren't my strength. So, but why don't you close us with prayer, and then we'll we'll okay. allow our audience right. to move move on today. Um, the prayer today from the mass. I think I, I loved it, and I'm going to use this. Okay. So, O God, who delight in innocence and restore it, direct the hearts of your servants to yourself that caught up in the fire of your spirit, we may be found steadfast in faith and effective in works. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. Holy Spirit, thank you, Monsignor. <laughs> and thank all of you for joining us on this episode of Deep in History. And if you aren't already... Uh, make sure you've become a part of the online community of the Coming Home Network International, where you can not only see more Deep in History episodes, but there are other media projects and, and a community of, of men and women on the journey. I don't mean just coming into the church, but living out their life in Christ in the church. And it'd be a great opportunity for you if you aren't already involved with that. So thank you, Monsignor. God bless. Take care. Okay. See you all next week.